invite you to open your Bibles to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, gospel of John, the fourth gospel as it's referred to, written much later, uh, at least a couple of decades later, a little more than the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we have something unique here, and yet it is another telling of the good news. Hence, it is the fourth gospel, all good news, our UN Galleon, the good news that God gave us by sending his son to die for the sins of mankind that they might have eternal life with him. John has a unique approach, as we've seen. John has uh, been influenced by uh, many that have been in his life much longer than the other apostles who uh, died earlier than, much earlier than he did. The last surviving apostle is influenced clearly by the uh, Hellenistic philosophers and all of those that have come down to uh, Philo, as I've mentioned him before, the Hellenistic Jewish Alexandrian who was influenced, of course, by the whole panoply of uh, Greek philosophers and those members of the academy in Athens and taking those things and creating his own theological scheme with how that comports these concepts and ideas of the logos as we see that word used as he opens his gospel with that word in the beginning was the word which comes from the greek logos and the idea uh, the platonic idea that this is the the world of ideas with a capital i this is the divine mind there must be we see reason and rationale we see even wisdom at creation and sure now Philo is able to start recognizing those things in his own copy of their scriptures as a Jew, but he was also a philosopher, and so he knew the philosophers well, and he began to pick up on that. So it's with that understanding, since Philo was a near contemporary of John's at the time, he was, uh, pro- he was an older man than John, and, but John certainly would have been in his adult years when Philo was in his elder years there in Alexandria and influencing all of Judaism, which is what Philo wanted to do. And so he's clarifying who the Logos is. And that helps us understand what a main purpose of this gospel is. It's a clarification of this idea that we have, as we mentioned Romans 1 before, that there must be a God, there must be some divine creator that has power, but more than that, has wisdom and, has, has, and uses reason. This God, we imagine, is, is benevolent. He's, he's got characteristics that we find in ourselves, sometimes in short supply. So there's more to this story. And of course, we find the rest of the story in our New Testament. We understand how fallen we are from Genesis and so on going forward. So Philo did all of that. He put all that together and made this sort of philosophical, theological scheme that he put together and said, here he is, the word of God, the word of God, the word of God that we see repeated throughout the Old Testament. But he never would allow him to have personhood. He would never would allow that this Logos idea was in fact the Christ who came. So that is what John is setting out to do. With that, let's read. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8 this morning. And John the Baptist, as we have a new character introduced now already, we're still in the prologue to this gospel. 
But we'll begin in verse 1 and go down through verse 8. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much with concepts this large, this massive, indeed, these concepts eternal that define your personhood, that identify the Christ as he has come. And now, O oh Lord, another, another subject, a, a human subject is introduced. So we need your help as we turn from these greater concepts that define who the Christ is to understand who this man is and why he is featured here in the beginning verses of this gospel. Clearly, there is significance, importance to his role. Help us understand these things that we would have a clearer understanding of who our Savior is and what he's called us to do and to be. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So John the Baptist, I think I've mentioned this before, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's considered a prophet. Jesus even uses that name later on when he's defining who John is. He's a prophet that has come. He is bridging the 400-year intertestamental period from Malachi where the Old Testament ends. There's a 400-year silent period until the Christ shows up. But there's someone who is prophesied that will come, an Elijah-like subject will come before the Christ comes and he will introduce him. He will identify who he is. Yes, God is making it that plain to his people. He's going to come. He's going to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's not too difficult to understand, is it? So, but... There's a lot that goes on if you're familiar with the story of John the Baptist, especially from the synoptics that uh, I think arguably could have more to say about who he was and what he did and so on. But this is John the Baptist. This is, we're going to be looking at contrasts here. We're going to be seeing what the distinctions are between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And he does that for us again in plain language. John the Baptist spoke in bold, direct, ungarnished, unvarnished, unequivocal terms about the truth of who Jesus is as the Christ. He doesn't bandy about with his words. He makes it plain. When he speaks, his sentences are short, they're bold, and they pierce the heart. For all those who would hear, he is preaching, he is announcing, no, he is declaring to God's people. We would refer, the Bible refers to them as the remnant. They are the remnant of those, those who haven't rejected God altogether to create their own religion and call it Judaism. Now, these are the ones who have held out. These are, these are the Simeons. These are the Zechariahs in the New Testament. These are the ones who came ready to receive the Messiah when he comes. He's announcing it to them. 
That's who John the Baptist is. This first, we need to understand something, especially as God has seen fit to open up his mind and impart it to his creatures, those who belong to him, those who he intends to save eternally. And that is that a truth isn't something to know. Truth is actually something that we are to be. We are to be. It's important to understand that. And I often will cite uh, Psalm 51, to make that point where David clearly says, Behold, you delight in truth in the what? Inner being. Folks, this is an ontological issue. In the inner being. You want me not just to speak the truth when it's convenient for, for, for me. You don't want me to just list fruit, uh, truth as if it's just uh, a matter of facts is all that we need, we're responsible for. No, we're actually to be the truth. We have the living truth himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in them I give life. And that life is the light of men. They're to be the truth. This is... a. Clearly, an ontological issue. This issue of the light of Christ is, again, it's, it's massive. Like I said on Saturday in the men's group, we like to watch the Olympics. And in the Olympics, you know, the, during the diving events, they have, you know, the low and the medium and the high dive. What is it, 30 meters? The, the Lord has bid me to go up to the 30-meter platform in this ocean that is the Logos, and dive. I won't come up. Trust me. It's massive. This issue of being, this issue, this ontological issue of the truth coming and imparting his mind to us, we have, 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. What? Wow. Tag, you're it. What a responsibility that is. Or at least we should reckon it so. And it is. It is. He's illuminated us. He's not only done that by illuminating his truth, his mind to us. He defines our existence. He defines what gives us meaning and purpose. Is that important this day? Uh, Yes. He defines that. I define you. I am the Lord your God. There is none other. You are the sheep of my pasture. I formed you. I made you. In my likeness and image, I define you. I define you. I give you that as a gift through my son. You must simply what? Believe. That's John's other point. Not only to reveal the Christ, but to present him to every soul that would have ears to hear and say, do you believe? Peter gets it right in Matthew 16. Martha gets it right in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. All those who believe in me, though they die, though they die, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then what does he say after that? There's a question there. It's for all of us. Do you, what? Believe. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who has coming into this world. Right answer. That's it. 
soul saved forever, new identity permanently, actually a reclamation of who I was before sin. In the mind of God, as He has created us, He also intended to save us from whom? Say yourself. Ourselves, right? Thank God He's saving me from me. I don't know anybody else who could save me from me. Don't say amen. The light of Christ obviously reveals Him to us so that we would believe and have everlasting life with the everlasting God. El Olam. God everlasting. Amazing. Why, why would He do this? So the primary purpose of the fourth gospel then is clearly evangelistic. That's why we have people that we're trying to uh, witness to, as we call it. We have them read just... We're, you, we talk to them and talk to them, and then when we finally have to part company, listen, would you just do this? Would you read John? And, and just answer that one question for me. Well, let's get back together again, and I can't wait. I'm going to be praying for you. Just answer one question. Who is Jesus who claims to be the Christ? Just answer that. He's either going to be revealed to them or not. I had a five-hour conversation with a young man who insisted on dating my daughter down in Florida. I said, not while I'm down here. She belongs to the king. Not me or you. And unless you can square that away with God and be reconciled in Christ, you have no business with this family. Now you go home and I'm going to be praying for you. And I want you to read John. I want you to come back tomorrow morning. And if you've reconciled with God by a recognition of who Jesus Christ is, then we can be friends. We can welcome you into acquaintanceship with our family. He went home. He came back, knocked on the door. My daughter had a bit in a car wreck. She's in a, a bedroom with a, with a busted up ankle. And she starts screaming, let him in, let him in, Dad. Well, we've got a little agreement. I'll let you know how it goes. And I didn't let him in. I walked out on the, pat, on the doorway and I said, uh, hey, uh, so how did it go? Did you read? Well, you know, I talked to my grandma and she's a Lutheran and she said, I don't have to. And I, you know where that's going to go. And he's shaking and he had all these prepared things and all that. And I just listened to him and I was patient with him and I said, okay. But we had an agreement. I'm, I'm not here to make you sign on to anything. I'm not here to, you know, foist my opinions on you. This is an issue of identity, folks. It's an issue of identity. You don't, you don't, you don't belong here. That was the agreement. And he fussed and he fussed and he said a few other things, hopped in his car and drove off. Well, I can't get into the details of the rest of the story because it takes too long. However, just know that some year, months, several months later, they had broke, long since broken up. He reached out to me by email. Back then, that's all you had. You didn't have cell phones and texting. So he reached out to me by email and he said, you told me, and this is what I told him in the driveway, I said, if you ever want to look into this sincerely, let me know. I'd be glad to talk to you. He reached out by email. For whatever circumstances in his life that were bringing things down around him, he reached out and he said, you said that if 
I ever wanted to know more about the gospel, you would. And I ended up discipling him from Tennessee down. He was still in Florida. And he decided that he wanted to come up and have me baptize him at Sycamore Creek, Cheatham County. But the amazing thing is, my daughter had called me and she had disclosed that she was pregnant. Uh, she had gotten in with a bad sort of fellow and she was pregnant. She wanted to know what to do. And I said, well, you pack up your car and you come up here and stay with us. That's a child. That's your child. That's my grandchild. You come up here and we'll take care of you, which we did. And she came and she lived. But when she was on her way up, this is the providence of God. You have to hear this part and we'll move on. It was the same day that her former boyfriend from several months ago that she broke up with was on the road. Both of them headed up to stay at our house. And Barbara's like, when are you going to tell her? When are you going to tell her who's coming up here? So I told her she wasn't happy. She wasn't in a good season in her life. But I thank God for that opportunity. And we don't want to underestimate the power of the Word of God in this gospel as Christ is revealed or the power of praying and the power of being patient and kind and making ourselves available even if somebody's being a rascal. <laughs> we want to help them see Him. They can't see Him. You can see him. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. So the name John is used over and over again 22 times in this gospel. 18 times it's referred to, it's referring to John the Baptist. Four times it's referring to Peter's dad. Peter, son of John. It never refers to the human author of this gospel. So his, he was born around, best uh, estimate on that is 7 BC to an elderly couple. You're familiar with Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was born six month, months before Christ. He grew his, up his manhood in the wilderness, as Luke 1 and verse 80 says. The wilderness of Judea is where he came into his manhood. That's where he received his call. In Luke 3 and verse 2, you can see that at around 70 AD, just to give you a time frame. I like time frames. So he re receives this call. He receives this call, and we see it in prophesied in Isaiah. 40 in verse 2, and then it's repeated, of course, in John's gospel by John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And I've spent some time on that, quite a bit of time on that. We'll look at that a little later on in the sermon. But that is basically who John the Baptist is and what he is sent to do. He is sent to prepare the way of the Lord. His arrival, he is making straight a highway in the desert. 
So with that language, we must extrapolate from Scripture what exactly that means. So these, there's different evidences that help us to understand that, yes, he was, in fact, sent by God because it was another miraculous conception just like Abraham had with Sarah because Zechariah and Elizabeth are very, very, very elderly. And so it would be considered pretty much a miracle for them to have a baby, and they do. Also, the announcement of the birth of John came from an angel. So we have these evidences. This isn't just any other guy. This is someone God has clearly sent. They, the, 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 those Hebrews, the, the Jews that existed at the time, had no problem uh, just accepting him as a prophet. So, and we'll see that as we continue on in John's Gospel. Verse 7, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So that's the ministry of John the Baptist in concise form, and that's actually in concise form all of our ministries who have come after John the Baptist because we are called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. We saw that given to the, the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my what? We've forgotten Acts already. Okay. You will be my witnesses, right? You're going to start here, you're going to go wider, you're going to go out further, right? And that's all the way to us today. So this is his task. The centrality of Christ drives, this issue of the centrality of Christ drives all Christian ministries, or it should, it's supposed to. That's why we have the centrality of Christ in our threefold purpose. He's central in everything. The gospel of Jesus Christ is central in everything from the public ministry of the word to the private ministry of the word, otherwise known as counseling, to every ministry that goes out from his church. That's John the Baptist. He stepped into the world's courtroom to testify, if you will, to Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited one, the anointed one, the one that they should have been expecting according to their scriptures. So God, again, at least in my mind, made it pretty clear to them who he was when he sent his son in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, as Galatians says. Verse 8, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So he's clarifying and reiterating, I'm not him. I came to bear witness about him. I want you to know how clear he is. As I said, bold, direct, ungarnished, unvarnished, direct truth, unequivocated truth. And that's what he does in very concise form. So God really has you pinned down because there's, you can't equivocate. Well, I wasn't really sure. No, this is the forerunner. This is the one they should have expected. This is the witness for Messiah when he comes. That's it. It's like all people, of course, John the Baptist is a contingent being. He's a, speaking ontologically, he's, he's, a, he's a contingent being. He's a, he's a created being, so he de- depends for his every moment of life on the necessary being who is God, right? So he's just a man, but he's not just any man, is he? He's fulfilling a very particular role here. In chapter 3, verse 28, you yourselves bear, wit- bear me witness, John said, 
You bear me witness. In other words, you can testify to this that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He is the clear forerunner and witness to the Christ who is coming. And who, in fact, is even there, isn't he? So Jesus, regarding John the Baptist in chapter 5, verse 35, says, He was a burning and shining lamp. So not the light. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Not, not the light, but a shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. When His light came, even though He said, I am not the light, you rejoiced for a while. I love how he gives us things to think about. That's what effective biblical counselors do, right? They craft their questions and their statements in such a way that provoke thought in the person. So that we don't get any glory in this. It's just, hey, have you thought about this? And Jesus does that with the utmost expertise. He's the greatest of all. He's the wonderful counselor, isn't he? So there's two different words here is what I want to point out. Luke Nos. And phos, phos is the light. Luknas is a lamp. And it says a shining lamp, okay? So the indefinite article is there. That implies that there are more of these. Who are the rest of the shining lamps? You. You and I. The rest of the disciples, the apostles who are spreading the word, right? That's who it is. This is Luknas. It's a, a portable lamp that's fed with oil. Ah, contingent being, yeah? Think ontologically for a little while this morning. That's who he is. He's absolutely dependent. That's what a lamp was. So these distinctions are important because when you see Christ show up, he's described as the life. Suddenly, the light rather. You've got the definite article there and you've got a different Greek word, phos. Phos, as opposed to Luknos. So Phos is the source of all spiritual illumination. If any spiritual truths are going to be enlightened, it's from Him. So He brings life, remember what we're building on, and the life was the light of men. He is the source. Jesus is the source, uppercase S. He's the one who pours in the oil, if you will, of his spirit that keeps the lamp lit. Praise the Lord. So here's, we arrive at our first statement this morning, our first salient point to derive from all of this. Jesus is the eternal source of light. The glory of God radiating through the earthly flesh he wore. And you saw him. You saw God. When you saw him, you knew the Father. I and the Father are one. So there he is. This false, this light. John 1, verse 14, looking forward to getting there. That's the end of our prologue. To the, We're still working through the prologue, by the way. You know, maybe we'll get there next year sometime. I'm not sure. <laughs> 
But isn't this a beautiful verse? And the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. I mean, folks, that'll preach, won't it? This is, this is who John the Baptist is here to declare he's here. That's him. So we'll have proof that he's just human in a little while as I unfold things about John the Baptist but this is him. He is full of the glory of God. He is the Son of God. He is the source of all light. He is the life. Hebrews 1.3, remember from last week, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Revelation 1.16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Isaiah 9.2, we can go one end of the scripture to the other. The people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Are you not happy? Are you not glad to hear that? I am. So you're just going to have to put up with me. I, 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 this is just amazing. Off the 30 meter platform and deep, deep down. That's, what, that's where these concepts are. They're vast. It's like looking out over the ocean. John 1.9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. You see that? So he's the source light. He's the foes who is the one who enlightens everyone. He lights all of these lamps that he has poured his oil to into and keeps the oil coming. Wow. So the little contingent beings, the little dependent lamps, depend entirely on him to keep the lamp lit. Do we have any responsibility there? Oh, that's coming up. It's John's other message. <laughs> So, your second point here this morning, the light of Christ breaks in then on our sin-darkened minds and illuminates the glory of the Lord. You know, I still marvel at how the Lord uses your song leader and the song choices. We just sang this. For God who said, let phos shine out of darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Let light. This is phos here. Now watch this. Let phos, let the source of light, the light, shine out of darkness. That's, that's Isaiah. Has shown, you know what Greek word that is? I'll tell you and you tell me what word we get from it. Lampo. You, you figure it out? He has shown, this is Lampo, in our hearts. He lit the lamp. He made my heart a lamp. He made it a vessel to pour his oil into that I might be lit up in him. 
We tamp ourselves down. That's what we do. Especially good reform folks. Yes. Oh, settle down there, preacher. Has shown in our hearts to give the light photismos. Uh, to give the light. Photismos. That comes from phos. To give his foes, to give the source of light to all of those lamps that he fills and he keeps burning. You can work this verse. Look, in our hearts to give the, the source, the mind, the logos, the source, the photismos of the knowledge, the knowledge, the knowledge of what? Of the glory of God. In what? The face of Jesus Christ. I love, I had to take some parts of it out just for time's sake, but Jonathan Edwards wrote something beautiful that I think, that made me think of this particular verse. Listen to this carefully. And allow yourself license to just enjoy this. Because that's what it's intended to do. To be enjoyed. A sense of the beauty of Christ is the beginning of true saving faith in the life of a true convert. A glimpse of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ causes in the heart a supreme, genuine love for God. (laughs) This is because the divine light shows the excellent loveliness of God's nature. That's who he is to his children. He's not a terror to his children. Someone to love. Someone we're attracted to, like a moth to the flame, yeah? i got to get back to Edwards. He goes on, The true love of God which comes from this sight of his beauty, if we understand him right, If you allow the enemy to take away the things that would declare and reveal and have rise up off the pages of Scripture, the resplendent beauty of Jesus Christ, you'll miss this. And that light that should be bursting out of your lamp, shining brightly, is slowly being turned down. We do that. We're afraid to get... I'm not going up on that... 30-meter platform, you might be thinking. Let him do it. Let him up there. What did Spurgeon say? He said, all I do, they asked him why he was so popular. All I do is show up on Sunday, set myself on fire, and the people come to watch me burn. Shame on me when I tamp that down. Oh, for decorum's sake. Besides, I want people to think of me as a certain reputation managing. I don't want people to, oh, is he getting a little charismatic there? No, we're going to stay. No, we're good reform folks. We keep it. You know, we, I want them to think of me as a mature person. Mature people just don't let themselves go like, are you kidding me? Do you know what's being said here? How oh, my The true love of God, he says, which comes from this sight of his beauty causes a spiritual and holy joy in the soul. Why would you restrain that? A joy in God and exulting in him. 
the sight of the beauty of divine things will cause true desires after the things of God, end quote, and praise the Lord. As the Spirit-illuminated work of the Word progresses, and I think I left this in your notes, the image of Jesus becomes clearer and clearer, which causes our love for Christ to grow. Turn that lamp up. Don't run low on the oil either. Like the five, right? Virgins, right? Yeah, virgins who weren't so wise and ran out of oil. So that can happen. Uh, Yes, it can, and we'll see more of that as we move on here. So 2 Peter 1.19, And we have seen something more sure than your experiences. We have something more sure than that. The prophetic word, this is the logos, this this is the divine mind. This is the world of ideas, capital I. Divine reason. We have seen something that's more sure. The eternal word, right? To which you would do well to pay attention as to a, what? A lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Do you believe this or do you think it's a fairy tale? Do you think this is a myth? It's him. It's Him. And you know it. And you know it's Him. You recognize Him because there's nothing so beautiful. There's nothing so glorious. As the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This word lamp is lukno again. There we go. We're a lamp. That's the distinction John wants to make clear. I am not the light. He's a lamp. That's what he is, and that's what we are. It's, it's a derived light. It's light that gets its source from something else. That's what the word means. Morning star. Phosphoros. Coming from phos. So you see, that's him. It's a comp- yeah, it's a com- yeah, phosphorus, exactly. Isn't that glow or something? Yeah. I'm not too bright. Get it? Oh, you got it. Good. It's a compound word that means to bring light. Isn't it wonderful to dig deep in the word? You're missing a blessing if you're not doing that. Regularly, daily. Go deep. All right, the five-meter platform. You don't have to go to the 30 yet. But go deep. Jesus is a source of light that rises in the hearts of men. That's what he's saying here, bringing the true knowledge of him that he might reveal himself to us through his word, which strengthens our faith, gives us hope. So here's our next point. The pride of man is the greatest barrier to radiating the image of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? So... When, when pride is able to reign in the heart, you become a dim bulb. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't think of another word. But that light is being diminished. And it's pride is the, is the water poured on the flame. It's the arm of Satan that's gotten a hold of that wick and he's turning it down. 
Take it easy. You don't want them to think you're some kind of charismatic, do you? Lighten up. If you lightened up, how could they avoid seeing him? How could they avoid? They'd either have to conclude the same thing they concluded with him. That is, you're either, Kramer would say, you're either crazy or there's something going on here that's legit. There's a, I've always said, there's, there's, I believe there's a life, and this is me, I, my opinion, I believe, based on Scripture, that there's a way that Reformed believers can enjoy their life. How about that? You down with that? You actually can. But this is the word you got to deal with. This is the barrier. The more we seek our own way, the more we stray off that illuminated path that he lit for us. It's a light to the path. It's a lamp to my feet so that every step is going rightly as I follow Christ and we stray off. And that's why we stray off. It's like, here's what I'm going to do because I've got this in mind. Okay. Somebody's got a lesson coming up. We have to remember the words of John the Baptist himself in chapter 3, verse 28 to 31. You yourselves bear me witness that I am not the Christ. He is, and this is coming up, but this is the epitome of humility. If you want to study what humility, if you want to study what God looks like, you look at who? Christ. If you want to study what humility looks like, study John the Baptist. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. See, he doesn't deny that. He doesn't speak in self-deprecate. Oh, no, I'm not. I might be sent by... No, he speaks the truth. He speaks truth. I have been sent before him. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must what? I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. I am a man, he could say. I, I, I'm of the earth. I'm of clay like the first man, Adam. But I've been called to this very special work. One writer said, keep yourself out of sight, Christian teachers and preachers. Put Christ in front and hide behind him. And quote, good advice. Let him be heard today. Let him be heard from the pulpits across the land. And not private agendas. So with the spirit of the living Christ in them, believers then radiate the glory of God. So long as they remain in contact with the source of light, the phos, the luknos needs the phos. We need the oil. We need his light. And that can't happen if you don't stay in contact with the light. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn and shines brighter and brighter until the full day. So you see progressive sanctification there, looking more and more like Christ. And remember, as A.W. Pink said, that's a growth, what? 
downward. The more true humility is being produced, and sometimes some pretty harsh lessons have to be learned, right? Very painful lessons. They're hard. Sometimes you're in tears as He's humbling you, but that's His growth in you. So, that light is shining brighter and brighter every day when we're on the path of righteousness, Proverbs 4.18 says. Verse 19, however, says, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. There's your contrast. This passage, this sermon's about contrasts. They do not know over what they stumble. We might put it in our vernacular, I don't know what happened. Do you ever say that as a Christian? You don't have to raise your hand. I will. It's a Christian germ, journeys down this illuminated path that Christ God has so graciously given us. We have to stay on that righteous path. The light grows brighter and brighter as we do. The inner man, therefore, is what? Growing, right? Even as the outer man is decaying. That's the concept. So light in us grows brighter, exposing more and more sin along the way. So that's the thing. Here's the, here's the heads up. The more that light brightens, the more it illuminates the sin in my heart. The things that previously were unnoticed. Because pride is what? Self-masking. Now it's being revealed. I've had people who, under the ministry of the Word, that started being exposed, good things were happening, and they found reasons to, to rebel against that. It's like, no, don't do that. It's brutal at times. It's brutal. Be thankful John the Baptist isn't here. You want to hear boldness. So Christians who stray... And to sin, they lose contact with the foes, with the light. That's the problem. And our lamp begins to get dimmer. And we suddenly are walking in darkness. And things start getting a little more confusing. And things start getting a little more hurtful. And our mind starts going in, in dark places. And we start thinking the wrong things. And now he's got captive our thought life. That is the enemy. He would love to pull you off that path if you read Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, you should. So John the Baptist, as I said earlier, is the epitome of humility. And he's, his message is onefold. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. He continually points to Christ, and this is from John one twenty seven. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. This isn't f- false humility. This isn't, no, I'm not worthy. No, this is quite literal. I'm not even worthy to do the lowest service that a bond slave would do. And when Christ was here, by the way, John 13, what did he do by way of example? Put on an apron of a slave and wash their feet. So this is John. I must increase, but he must decrease. John 30 or 3.30. So now back to the prophecy that he would come. Back to Isaiah 40, verse 3. Because I want to pack that a little more. 
So Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. And I told you, I, I, I thought, okay, that kind of language, you, it bears, it, it begs us to unpack, right? It, it begs us to search further to, to know what exactly that means. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. God is coming. God is sending the Messiah. God said, I will save you. Here he comes. So prepare the way. What do you suppose needs to be prepared? You got it. It's our hearts. It's like you guys have been practicing this religion here in Jerusalem. You've been all about you and all about religious show. The remnant of you will listen. You'll recognize this coming from the great prophet Isaiah. He's coming. We will send the forerunner to prepare the way of the hearts of those who are mine. Those who I hold by way of possession. I told him I'd come. I'm coming. That's him. So then, if that's true, then what are the... What's the desert? The desert's what you made of your life with what you've made out of your religion. Can you imagine what he thought when he looked down and saw what they've made of their religion? It's a desert. It's a wasteland. It's empty. There's no life. I'm coming. He loves those who are his enough to come and bring living water into a dry and dead desert that there might be life. So that's his message. That's, now you know why his message is onefold. Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 2 and verse 8. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, he said to the religious ones. Remember, they came to be baptized. Go back. You don't get it. You're not getting it. I came as I was called in the wilderness of God to be that Elijah-like forerunner to say, prepare yourselves, here he comes. Make a way for him, make it broad, make it plain. The high places bring down, the low places bring up, and let him have a straight path into your heart that it might be filled with the love of God and the life of Christ that becomes your light. That's his message. So I went from there and I was, I found this from Job where Zophar, now forgive him, we know that they really didn't know what was going on, but you see how much truth is actually in the book of Job, right? And you've mined that truth out. There's a reason it's in scripture, not so that we know, boy, they just were completely wrong and everything. Listen to what Zophar said to Job. This is Job eleven thirteen to 17. If you... What do you think the next phrase is? Prepare your what? Heart. He's trying to help Job. He's trying to say how these things get resolved. If you prepare your heart, what? You will stretch out your hand toward him. That's what John the Baptist is saying. That's his job. That's his calling. 
Prepare your heart to receive. They closed up. They held their hearts. Their hearts were closed up. They were shriveled up. They were deserts. And they kept their hands to themselves, according to what Zophar is saying here. If you prepare your hearts, you will stretch out your hand toward them. But listen to this. Verse 14 is important. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. What's that word called? Repentance. Just repent of it. It just means to turn from the former way. Have your mind changed. Make your heart right and turn back toward God. So Zophar is saying, as you do this, here's what happens. Listen to what happens. And let not injustice dwell in your tents. What's he implying there? That the reason he's wealthy was what? Ill-gotten, right? Don't let injustice dwell in your tents. Verse 15, surely then you will lift up your face. Your countenance will be lifted. Without blemish, you'll be pure. You will secure, you will be secure rather and will not fear. There goes the fear that you've had. The fear you had to maintain while you had iniquity going on in your life. No, prepare your hearts. It's a desert right now. Open your heart upright. Turn from your sin and your iniquity and let Christ the life come in. That's what he's saying. Verse 16, you will forget your misery and you will remember it Well, make up your mind so far. Am I supposed to forget my misery or remember it? (laughs) You will forget your misery. That is the pain of it. The dirt of it. The shame of it. Will be forgotten by the one who despised what? The shame. Paying the price. You will forget that, but you will remember it. How? As the waters that have passed away. It's dealt with. That's what John the Baptist is preparing the way for. He's here. The way that you can have all of your sins forgiven. The waters will be remembered. The waters that have passed away and your life will be, listen to this, brighter than the noonday. How about that? There he is again. He's showing up in one of the oldest books in the Bible. Wow. The light. Second Samuel, we have David. He's at the end of his tenure as king. 2 Samuel 23, 1-4. Now these are the last words of David. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The Lord of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, then what? Listen. He dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Always morning. Why? Because it's a progression, isn't it? That rising morning star rises in your heart as the new man, now retrieved, now secure, he's getting ready to go to our real home, to be with Jesus Christ in glory forever. Him who is the morning star, rising up, powerful. Listen to this. 
So first let me say that, by the way, we're doing contrast. So the fear that we see Job with, remember Zophar said, you will be secure and will not fear. So that obviously implies that he was, he had this fear that something's wrong. He didn't know where it's coming from. That's a servile fear. This fear David's talking about ruling in the fear of God is a familiar or a familial or reverential fear, isn't it? See the difference? McLaren said this, brethren, it is threadbare truth that the condition of Christian vitality and radiance is close and unbroken contact with Jesus Christ. That's where it will come from. Period. Close and unbroken contact with Jesus Christ, the source of all light. But if we lived as if we believed it, the church would be revolutionized. I agree. And the world illuminated. And many a smoking wick would flash up into a blazing torch. Too risky? Want to dial it down a little? You will be my witnesses. The Great Commission fulfilling Christian has been given a message. He has to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ just like John the Baptist And here's another point of our charge, not only Acts 1 and verse 8, but how about Romans 10? You're familiar with it. Verse 13 to 15 and 17, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent verse 17 so faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ we who are saved now with John the Baptist being a mortal man is long gone it's our call as witnesses of Jesus Christ. Him who is life, who becomes the light of men. That's our call now. Jesus, it's not only granted, granted us forgiveness, which is spectacular in itself, He's given us life. He's given me light when I walked in darkness. And the life is a light that shines that others might see Him illuminated in you and I. My testimony is simple. As the man who was born blind when he was interrogated by the council, all I can say is, I was blind and now I see. Now I see. Once ignorant, crawling through this world in the mud and the ash of a burnt-down civilization, and he reached down and retrieved. You're going to have some time after we close in prayer. 
I can't know what the Lord has put on your heart. All I'm here to do is preach the truth and let God do His work. I bid you to meet with Him. Every one of us has different issues. It's not just a matter of saved or not saved. Maybe your lamp's been a little low. Maybe you've shrunk back. Maybe you haven't known the kind of bright, blazing, burning light that brings so much joy. Effervescently, it overflows in your heart so people can't help but to see your Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much. You are so faithful. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life of Christ who has now become our life and our light. Help us to do the things that facilitate keeping this little lamp burning brightly. So may we be in contact with you, understanding our contingency, understanding, Lord, that we depend entirely on you. It's up to us to reach out to you. You don't make anyone do that. And I pray among all of those here in this house today and those who may be listening online that they consider these things carefully because these are your words. Truly, you are here. You are speaking to us all. And we thank you for it and give glory to God because of it. In Christ's name, amen.